Please be seated. I invite you to Psalm 79. If you'll just find that psalm, we'll be looking at here briefly by way of introduction to Acts chapter 20. Psalm 79. God created marriage in part to serve as a tangible display of the covenantal relationship between Jesus and His church. In like manner, God created sheep in part to serve as a visible symbol of God's care for His people. The one-time shepherd boy, King David, realized this when he wrote, The Lord is my shepherd. Which meant to David that his soul would never thirst again. He would never be in abject need because God was his shepherd. Not only did the shepherd of Israel fully satisfy David's soul, the shepherd of Israel chose under-shepherds to serve the purposes of his people Israel. Here in Psalm 78, at the end of the psalm, verse 70, 78, 70 of the Psalter, says that God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. You remember the history. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. We realize David was no perfect shepherd, to be sure, but God is a perfect shepherd, and he ordained human shepherds to build up Israel. You perhaps remember that classic text in Ezekiel chapter 34 where God looks at the shepherds of Israel and calls them to account for not caring for His people. God is the perfect shepherd, but He has always worked through fallen individuals to shepherd His people, and He holds them to account. Picking up the same theme, Jesus declared, I am the good shepherd. And I think that statement is made in light of something such as Ezekiel 34 and the shepherds of Israel who failed Israel, who did not have God's purposes at heart and let down His flock and His people. But Jesus comes as the Good Shepherd. And who is this Good Shepherd? He says, I am the shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. And for the flock that Jesus died to redeem, as God did in Israel, so Jesus on this side of the cross as the Good Shepherd gives spiritual shepherds to His church. Let's look to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 to remember from the pen of the Apostle Paul the connection to the church of elders, of shepherds that God gives to the flock. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 11, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor-teacher, is probably the way to understand that, pastor-teachers, shepherds. Why does Jesus give shepherds to the church? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now think here in terms, as we just work our way through verses 13 to 16, of the maturity of the congregation, of the, of the people of God. He equips the church with such leadership that the body of Christ would be built up, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, with whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body is to build itself up in love. So the good shepherd gives spiritual shepherds to the congregation that the congregation may build itself up in love. So it's, it's the members of the body of Christ, all of us sharing, in a sense, this shepherding function that Jesus has for His church to bring maturity and encouragement to the people of God. The Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 20, if you'll work your way there, the Apostle Paul unveils the heart of a true spiritual shepherd in this passage as he speaks to the elders of the church at Ephesus. He is a shepherd who serves Jesus' purposes with distinction. And reflecting the good shepherd is one of those shepherds that God commends. At stake, as we work our way through this speech, beginning at verse 17 of Acts chapter 20, at stake in our reading of this speech is nothing less than the health of our own church, the orientation of our ministry here, and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a crucial passage of Scripture in the book of Acts. The only passage that's addressed to believers, the only speech of Paul that's addressed to believers, it is a crucial text for us to understand as we discern the nature of the church and this purpose of Jesus to shepherd His people. Let's remember the context briefly. The Apostle Paul and at least eight other men, probably more, are making their way by ship along the western coast of the Roman province of Asia, what we know to be as Turkey. Their destination, remember, is Jerusalem. And uh, Paul is going there to the festival of Pentecost hoping to convene there at the time when there are so many that are gathered. But they, will, they have worked their way, he's worked his way, actually from Asia across to Macedonia and Achaia, then working his way back up. Remember there was a plot here on his life, he wanted to sail back across to Jerusalem. But that plot leads him up through Macedonia, he links up with Dr. Luke up here, sends other men on ahead. There's at least eight of them that accompany him, I think very probably more. But they've now made their way down by ship along this passage, and they keep stopping at various ports of call. Probably there's cargo that's being left off of the ship. They make their way now down to Miletus. Miletus is about 30 miles as the crow flies from Ephesus, though the uh, land route would have been much longer. But Paul stops here and he does not want to go back to Ephesus. Remember, he's been working his way down through this region for probably over a year. We're not sure even of all of his evangelistic efforts during this time. What we do know is that he has been collecting gifts from these churches for the gift, the larger gift that will come from the Gentile churches of this entire region being passed on to the church at Jerusalem in order to unify Jew and Gentile, to strengthen the church, and to encourage those troubled believers in Jerusalem. But as he takes that money, and he's surrounded by these men who provide some brawn to protect that money, and are journeying with him, he stops at Miletus, but he doesn't want to go back to Ephesus. 
He was at Ephesus for three years. It's now been something of a year that he has not been back. He does not want to get caught in the city from enemies as well as perhaps being stuck with the church because he is very anxious to get back to Jerusalem at Pentecost. So while he's working his way down the coast, stops at Miletus, he sends word to the Ephesian elders to meet him here at Miletus. It would have taken uh, several days to pull this off. But verse 17 of Acts 20, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. The elders of the church. If we look at verse 28 and we compare it with Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, we learn that elders, the Hebrew term, is interchangeable with overseers, the Greek term. Each term may have a little bit of a distinct nuance, but it's clear as he speaks to these elders, speaks of them as overseers, and also in Titus 1, that the word was interchangeable to the original hearers. Overseers and elders, when used in the context of the New Testament, are always found in the plural. They can be spoken of within their qualification in the singular, of course. Uh, an, an elder is one person, but it's always an individual working among other elders in the context of the New Testament when their function is being described. And what is that function? These elder overseers, their function is pastoral. That is, they are shepherds of the flock of God. Again, verse 28 will make that clear. So he calls these shepherds of the flock of God to come to him at Miletus, and he is going to talk to them about his time with them. First of all here, his time in the past at Ephesus as a shepherd among them. Verse 18, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That encapsulates his ministry to them. Some people say, well, Paul's being awful proud here, isn't he? I mean, I was really a good guy among you, wasn't I? Let's remember, though, the context. There are many who are attacking his apostolic authority. There are those that are uh, proving rivals of Paul. There are parties that are developing. There's false teachers that are there. The other thing is, is Paul is absolutely confident he will never see these people again. And he wants to put down a very careful primer for them as they teach other elders and as they consider their own responsibility as overseers of the flock of God. So this isn't a time of messing around in false humility. This is a time to say, remember how I lived when I was among you. Don't forget it. I lived among you without a single lapse in the record. Not to say that he was sinless or without fault, but we see there in verse 18, these men knew Paul well, they shared his vibrant ministry, and to these who, who knew him well, he says, I have served faithfully from day one to lights out. My entire time with you, I've served the purposes of God. Verse 19, he says he serves with humility, which probably can certainly include humility of spirit, but I think probably it should be taken more in the sense of inhumiliation. I didn't come sweeping into town as the great rabbi. I was having to skirt around those who wanted to put me in prison. 
and the plots on my life. I served you in humiliation, in tears, in trials, in plots against my life. I wasn't here to be the big cheese. I wasn't here to find ease of circumstances. I poured out my soul in humiliation serving the Gospel. Verses 20 and 21 in His preaching, I did not shrink back from anything that was profitable to you. Probably indicating in some sense those who maybe were preaching along those lines, withholding certain issues that were difficult in the church, perhaps Jew and Gentile relationships. I shared with you everything that was necessary. I shared with you the whole counsel of God. Preachers are always tempted to pull punches to withhold what may be profitable. Paul said, I didn't do that. I did not preach in that way. I preach, verse 21, repentance toward God. That is a turning from sin and self-sufficiency to the God against whom sinners are in rebellion. I preach that we are in rebellion, that we are under the wrath of God, and that we must turn to Christ and live a life of repentance. I preach positively faith in Jesus Christ, that is, trust in Jesus' death in which He suffered the wrath of God in the sinner's place and trust in Christ's conquest of sin and death by His resurrection. I proclaim this message to you faithfully. At verse 22 now, and let me say it this way, Paul preached the whole counsel of God to all kinds of people in all kinds of settings with all the strength that God supplied. It was an all-out effort. Then at verse 22, he shifts in emphasis from his past ministry in Ephesus, which they would have observed. And he moves now to the present situation and what is coming in the future at Jerusalem. Verse 22, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now put yourself in Paul's position here. This is a difficult life, isn't it? And this is a difficult situation to face. I'm constrained by the Spirit. That is, he had a strong conviction that God wanted him to visit Jerusalem, perhaps even a direct revelation from God, I want you in Jerusalem. Yet, picture in your mind again this map and these various ports of call as he stops off and the ship unloads its cargo and takes on other cargo and passengers come and go. As he's there at each port, the Spirit of God is testifying you're in big trouble when you get to Jerusalem. There's going to be suffering there and there is going to be imprisonment. I don't think the Spirit of God can only talk when a guy's on land. He could have talked when he was on the ship. So I think the point is that he is hearing this through prophets at these cities. And they're saying, Paul, do you know what God has said? Have you heard the word from the Spirit? You're going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem. Now, is this guy insane or what? This isn't some prognosticator trying to make money on the side. This is the Spirit of God saying, you are headed for prison. And Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem because God wants me there. That theology right there, we'll not play with it at all here today, but that theology right there messes with a lot of people. God wants me to suffer, and I'm going to do it. Paul is not serving Jesus for the lush accommodations, is he? 
He's not serving Jesus for ease of circumstances. He's not serving for the notoriety that he gains as a speaker. He is not fleecing God's people. He's doing what God has called him to do as a soldier of Jesus Christ. On the most important mission in the world. Like his Savior before him. Do we see the reflection of Jesus here? Like his Savior before him, Paul has set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, knowing that trials and difficulties await him there. Remember that time when Jesus turned in his public ministry to go to Jerusalem knowing that he would be crucified, but knowing it was what God wanted. That's where Paul is here. And there is in this spirit a sense of real freedom that is so unusual in this world. A unique freedom that we gain as Christians when we know we're doing God's will. A freedom to live at peace despite danger. A freedom to live with courage. Even when others say we're absolutely insane. That freedom is clearly expressed. If you want to touch that spirit, as far as you can get to touching it, we come to verse 24. Here's what makes Paul move forward to Jerusalem knowing he'll be thrown in prison. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What is the source of this unnatural freedom? This otherworldly freedom to live in the face of danger. What is the source of it? He expresses it here. It is this. Death held no fear for Paul. And self held no power. Death held no fear. And self held no power. I do not account my life as of any value or as precious to myself. It's not a good self-esteem text, is it? My life is lost. Now, if it ended right at that, I don't count my life of any value to myself, period. That's a sick man. But what he's saying is I do not value my life over the gospel. The cause of Jesus Christ, I am lost body, soul, and spirit in that cause. It's a cause greater than who I am. And I can say that Paul is not sick in soul here. He's a man who's rejoicing in the call of God to pour out his life. He's a man who knows what it is to be alive. I'm going to Jerusalem. This spirit was crystallized by the young 19th century English missionary James Calvert. Calvert and his wife Mary and their friend John Hunt sailed from England to the Fiji Islands off the coast of Australia as missionaries for the Wesleyan Methodist Missionary Society. As they were making their journey there, imagine that, sailing by this ancient ship, this old ship from England to Australia. But as they're making their way there, the captain of the ship took a liking to James and to his group and he began to try to dissuade him, to divert him away from the Fiji Islands because these islands were inhabited by cannibals. He said, this is a ridiculous venture. What are you doing? What are you thinking? He finally became exasperated with James and he said, do you understand when we land this ship on one of those islands and you go inland to proclaim the gospel of Christ, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill your wife and they're going to kill your friend. They're savages, and they're going to eat you for supper. James Calvert 
replied to the captain respectfully, We died before we came. We died before we came. There's that freedom. That freedom to serve Christ without fear. I don't mean by that not emotional fear. Undoubtedly, there were moments of great fear. In fact, Paul writes about them. But there's that sense of being sold out to the cause of Christ that I can do whatever God has given me to do and I don't ever need to stand back. We died before we came. We're already dead men walking. We can serve the cause of Christ. And in light of that story, in light of Paul's example here to go to Jerusalem, in light of ultimately Jesus' march toward Jerusalem when He knew He would be crucified, we can say if what you're living for is not worth dying for, you're really not living. You're just taking up space on the planet. Do you live for a cause that's worth giving your life for? If there's nothing more precious than your life, you have nothing you are empty, and you need a shepherd. To all of us, this truth applies, but I'd like to focus particularly on our young people here. Some of you who are yet to leave the home and will be leaving the home, I pray to God for you that you will be able to leave the home and go into this world with the courageous abandon of one who can say, I'm already dead. I've died in Christ. I have nothing to fear. I have heaven to gain. And I can live that way. Let me say to you, if you make that your life orientation, you will have a shepherd that will never abandon you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will go with you with joy wherever you go. If you go from your homes and you go into this world living for self and pleasure, you will abandon this kind of a life and there will be no joy in it ultimately. May all of us have this sense, I have died with Christ. I go into this world to be the man, the woman, the young person that He wants me to be because He is my Savior and my Shepherd and I'm safe in Him. Now that moves at this point of the speech from what Paul is saying, I do not count my life dear to myself at all. I'm willing to die for Christ if that's what He wants me to do. And now it comes to you, Ephesian elders. Let me talk to you specifically. He works his way there at verse 28 particularly, but here at verse 25, he says, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Proclaiming the kingdom. I don't think he's referring here simply to the return of Christ and His millennial kingdom. But I think kingdom here encompasses God's overarching plan for all people and for the created order of which the Gospel is the central piece. The kingdom is shorthand for God's will in all of its aspects centered in the person and work of Christ. That's the message that He is proclaiming. After the visit to Jerusalem, He plans to go to Rome. That will be His base to stretch to the furthest limits of European civilization in Spain. He does not plan to ever see their face again. Never to set foot in Ephesus again is His plan. And so He says, you'll not see Me again. 
Therefore, verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What a way to go out. What a way to leave. I've declared to you the whole counsel of God. I've not shrunk back from anything in declaring to you what is necessary. Not that all that could be declared, but all that was necessary for their life and sanctification. He had declared it all. This evokes again Ezekiel 34 and God's call to the shepherds of Israel. Paul claims to have honored this calling. The shepherds of Israel, God said, the blood of my people, the blood of my flock is on your hands because you have not been faithful to declare the whole counsel of God. And I fear for my own life I fear for the leaders of our church, the teachers of our church. I really fear for those in other churches where demonstrably they are skipping texts of Scripture. They are skipping doctrines of Scripture because they're not popular. I would far rather minister to a smaller church and not have to say the blood of God's people is on my hands as a shepherd because I've not protected them. And may every one of us who conveys in any sense the truth of God, who shepherds others in any sense of the word, be faithful to proclaim the whole counsel of God. Not just the parts that are acceptable. This was Paul's legacy. I am free. I am innocent before God. He doesn't mean he taught everything. He doesn't mean that he was perfect in his teaching. He just means I did not withhold anything that was helpful to you. There are doctrines, there are truths, there are passages of Scripture. Again, it reminds me of our work through Luke. I remember how many times in preaching through Luke, I said, there's churches that can't preach this passage. It's impossible. It would mess with everything they think and believe because they're so worried to never say anything that's offensive. Paul said, I taught the whole counsel of God. Now, you, elders, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Elders must be men who actively pursue a vibrant relationship with God and a life rudder that is set to eternal purposes. They're not living for this world and for fame and for ease. They must nurture their own hearts They will never be flawless men. They'll never be sinless men. They must, however, be men who walk with God in holiness. I believe it was Oz Guinness who tells the story of a man that he met, I think, in the Far East who explained that he had far more regard for Buddhists than for Christians. Why is that? When I meet a Christian pastor from the West, I meet an administrator, a businessman. When I meet a Buddhist priest, I meet a holy man. Now, undoubtedly, I think the comment is filled with prejudice. And I'm sure you could find a few Buddhist priests that aren't doing what they should be doing as well. But there's truth in that, isn't there? We are so oriented in our culture to be administrators. A Christian shepherd is to be, above all else, a man of God. We're to be holy people. A spiritual shepherd whose inner life is a mess, is in disarray, might be a tremendous public speaker, a charismatic individual, an administrative guru, 
But when the inner heart is in disarray, there will be destruction in that church. Paul says, you watch your heart. Nurture it. Bring it through devotion and through orientation of life to love God with all your soul. McShane said, it is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awesome weapon in the hand of God. That does not mean material or physical or external success will follow such an individual. What it's saying is where is our orientation? Watch your heart. Pay careful attention to your soul. Nurture your walk with God as you shepherd the people of God. As verse 28 continues, then that careful attention is to be given to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You elders are overseers by the gift of the Spirit of God. Now undoubtedly, Paul himself had had a part in establishing these individuals as elders. And certainly the church had weighed in and recognized their function among them as spiritual shepherds. But ultimately, this is the work of the Holy Spirit who provides the local church with shepherds. Fallen, sinful, weak, incapable shepherds, but shepherds who are to nurture their heart and to watch the flock of God carefully. Now, if you've got your pen or pencil ready, here we go. The word care in the ESV, cross it out. The terrible translation. If your translation says feed, feed the flock of God, cross it out. It's the word shepherd. So the way that the text works is pay careful attention, watch your soul, and watch the church to shepherd the flock of God. That's the word that is used. I don't know why we have translated care and feed, which are both part of shepherd, but they're not the epitome of it. It's a larger term than that. You are to shepherd the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. Speaking, of course, of the death of Jesus. And this is a stunning truth that should overwhelm every spiritual shepherd and temper the way every one of us relates to one another. Here is the truth. The believers in this church were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. That needs to detonate in our soul. It is His church, first of all. They are His people. Jesus bought these people with His blood. They are precious in His sight. And we should all work with one another as we encourage one another's heart with that sense. These people belong to Jesus. He cared to purchase their soul with His own blood. In his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, Philip Keller tells of the day that he purchased his first flock of sheep, 30 ewes from a neighbor. They sat on a rail fence looking over the flock that was incarcerated there in front of them. He was studying his new sheep and his new charge. And he writes this, that turning to me, my neighbor handed me a large, sharp killing knife and remarked tersely, well, Philip, they're yours. Now you'll have to put your mark on them. I knew exactly what he meant. Each sheep man, each shepherd, has his own distinctive ear mark, which he cuts into one or other of the ears of his sheep. 
In this way, even at a distance, it is easy to determine to whom the sheep belongs. He explains how this is a painful process to the shepherd as well as to, and obviously, the sheep. But he says, in this way, this cut becomes an indelible, lifelong mark of ownership that can never be erased. Think of the contrast. And this is what's so moving about it. By contrast, our shepherd does not mark us as his sheep by inflicting a wound on us. He marks us as his sheep by inflicting the ultimate wound on his son. The wrath of God on the head of Christ is what it took to make us the flock of God. The mark of our identity as a flock of God is not a painful wound on the ear, but the nail-scarred hands and feet of our Savior. That's the mark that speaks for us. Purchased with the blood of Jesus, sealed with the Spirit of God, may we never forget Jesus, the shepherd, has purchased His people with His blood. May we never forget that. Elders, shepherds, overseers, people that we serve were purchased with the blood of Christ. May we never forget that, deacons, as we serve. These people that we serve and are trying to organize and move forward and encourage in the work of God are people that He bought with His blood. May we never forget that, teachers, as we share with young people, with adults and all the truth of God's Word, these people have been purchased with His blood. May we never forget that, all of us, as we serve one another in the shepherding function that God intends, this church was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has marked it with His Spirit. How that should radically transform the way that we relate to one another and the way that we look at our opinions and our jobs, our service, and our leadership. These are Jesus' sheep. It's nearly an overwhelming thought, but may it mark us and change us. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, now a shocking word, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Wow. The Holy Spirit places shepherds over His flock. Obviously, a church is capable of placing someone in office who should not be there, and elders can fall away in sin. Indeed, some will, Paul says. Had to be a terribly sobering line in the speech, wouldn't it? From among you guys is going to come somebody who twists the Scriptures in order to get a following. Somebody who wants to be right. Somebody who wants to be influential. Somebody who wants to draw away God's sheep to self is going to rise up among you and twist the Scriptures to get what they want out of it. I imagine the Spirit had to be something like the disciples on the night of Jesus' betrayal. Lord, is it I? As these shepherds consider, would that be me? Would I teach the Scriptures in such a way as to simply gain a following and twist the truth of God? Don't let it happen, says Paul. Therefore, verse 31, because this is the danger, be alert 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. We see the intense preservation and proclamation of the truth here. Jesus is the shepherd. He'll never leave us or forsake us. We rest secure in His hands. Does that mean then that we sit back and watch? No. Paul poured out his soul night and day, sharing anything that was profitable, teaching publicly and from house to house, working and laboring for three years to admonish everyone with tears. You shepherds, he says, need to do the same thing. To admonish, to encourage, to challenge God's people to live for Him. This can be done in a selfish way, in a way that draws people to you, but it must be done in a godly way that allows the church of God to grow. He turns now to conclusion with what is almost a benediction here in verse 32. A Trinitarian benediction, you'll note. I now commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I now commend you to God, to the word of His grace. Paul is leaving for good. As far as he is concerned, he will never see them in this life again. And what does he say? Boys, you're in trouble. I, the great apostle, am leaving. You might want to figure on folding up the church and sort of ending things here because we're closing down and this is just not going to work well without me in the picture. That would be utterly foolish, wouldn't it? You know that's not Paul's heart. Does that mean he just lays back and says, I know God will build his church? No, night and day with tears. But as he's leaving, he says, I commend you to two things. I commend you to God, and I commend you to His Word. You will be in the care of God, and I commend you to the Word of His grace. What does that Word do? Verse 32, it builds believers up in the faith. It exhorts them, it encourages them, it strengthens them in the faith. You have the Word of God. It is sharp, it is powerful. It will build the church. Teach it faithfully. Fight the false teaching. Speak the truth. Secondly, this Word brings believers into their eternal inheritance with Jesus and those that He has sanctified by His Spirit that is made holy or distinctive unto Himself. The power of the Gospel, not the skill of the shepherd, is what matters. I commend you to God and to His Word. It's a heart-wrenching thought to think I won't be back here again. But the power of the Gospel is not in me. It's in God's truth. Returning... To his own example, he reminds them then as they take up their responsibilities without him. Verse 33, don't forget this. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In contrast to the false teachers, the traveling philosophers, the religious hucksters, Paul was not driven by material greed to serve Jesus. He worked with his own hands to supply his own needs and to supply the needs of those that were around him. He didn't have to do that, but he chose to do that. He chose to do that in order that there would be no charges that, yep, here's another one of those traveling philosophers who are simply trying to get money out of people. I worked with my hands, he says, to supply my own needs. I was not working to get rich, and you know it. Now verse 35, in all things... 
I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. I don't think the point is it's better to give a gift than receive a gift. That might be an implication in certain times. Sometimes it's really good to receive a gift, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. I don't think that's what he means. I think what he's saying is it is more blessed to give to the needs of others in the cause of Christ than to amass wealth for yourself. There is a blessed life in those who see the cause of Jesus and realize that their material resources can be put into that cause. That's a blessed life. Jesus taught his followers it's better to give. It's better to give off, give out, than to amass and accumulate for self. Those who pour out their wealth to benefit others in the cause of Christ then are uniquely blessed. As Jesus taught his followers, one commentator puts it, that generosity to others is an antidote to covetousness and a way to escape the captivating deceit of riches. The deceit of riches is that the wealth that I gain is for me, it's for my pleasure, and it will satisfy my soul. That is a lie. It is more blessed to take the wealth that God puts in our hands and to pour it out for others. Then we are serving the purposes of the shepherd, and that is more blessed than accumulating in order to find ease in money. That's how I lived among you. You know it, he says. Follow that example. Shepherd the church of God. If your heart is bound up in covetousness and greed and materialism, you will not shepherd the people of God well. When he had said these things, verse 36, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, the oriental greeting departure symbol, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. For good reason, we are awed by the kind of shepherd that Paul was. I assure you, as Paul put his back to Miletus and put his back to Ephesus, that's not how he saw himself. I don't think he was enamored with what he saw in the mirror. He said, in fact, of himself, I am the chief of sinners. What Paul is doing is taking the time to say that what drives me is the glories of the gospel that I'm preaching this message of Jesus is worth every human sacrifice because it is a life-changing, history-altering, kingdom-conquering, hope-assuring, sinner-rescuing message. And Paul knew it. I think we might look at Paul here and say this journey to Jerusalem, this man's insane. He's really missing some marbles to be living a life like this. Now we're the ones who are insane if we don't understand the glories of the Gospel that he saw. He's saying there is nothing greater in this world to live for. This is the powerful message of Christ crucified and risen that transforms souls. This is what drives Paul. 
What is more, Paul is simply reflecting, I think, the greater glory of Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Paul had his weaknesses. He had his sins. Jesus didn't. Jesus, as the good shepherd, has laid down his life to pay the penalty of our sins. And we can know this is how he labors to nurture the souls of his people. Night and day, with passion and zeal, our shepherd Jesus Christ never sleeps. He is always watching, ever nurturing, always drawing us forward, seeking to transform us by the Gospel. Jesus is always leading us in the right way. He is always feeding us His Word, always protecting us against false doctrine. And for one minute, if we were left alone under the attack of Satan, we would all succumb. We would all fall to Satan's purposes. But our Savior stands and protects us. He stands there before Satan as we as His sheep stand by His leg quaking, but He stands strong. He will never let anyone steal our soul if we belong to Him. This is our shepherd. He is a shepherd who cares for us, binding our wounds, healing us, bringing us forward, putting us back on our feet, and encouraging us. We have a great shepherd. And all Paul is doing is simply reflecting the depth and the wonder of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, as he relates to others. But let me take a little sideline here just for a moment and say the picture of the faithful shepherd that emerges from Acts 20, I honestly cannot see in the evidence of our culture and our time that this is a popular model. The evidence just is not there. There's certainly a lot of support for Acts 20, lip service. But when it comes to what is a spiritual shepherd, what is the orientation that a church is to have, I just don't see it. I cannot for a moment tell you that I or any of the elders in this church compare well with Paul in any way, shape, or form. But as God knows my heart, I think I can tell you this with assurance. This is our textbook. We're not reading off of some other page. The shepherds of this church, the teachers of this church are not people, and you can look at what they're reading. I mean, we read a lot of junk too to stay up on touch with things, but we're not reading things to try to be good CEOs and businessmen. We're not striving to become psychologists. We're not striving to learn the latest marketing skills. This is our text. What we're striving to be is men of God. There's nobody in this room who knows more how far short we fall. Everyone can say when we know our own soul, every shepherd among us, all of us here can know, I am the chief of sinners as far as I know. But having said that, what is the text? What is the truth to which our life is moving? I say by the grace of God, may He continue to lead us to this end. We are not striving to be CEOs, psychologists, social coordinators, or the best friend on earth to hang around with. We're striving to be men of God. Our calling is to be shepherds of the Lord's flock. 
And so it is for every one of us. And may it be for every one of us that we sense here not a job description for some people that lived a long time ago that has nothing to do with me because I'm not an elder. May we read this text to say, here is the nature of the church that Jesus Christ gave himself to form and create. It's a flock. It's a body. It's a place where people are to be maturing in the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's a place where people are confessing sin and seeking to grow in righteousness. It's a place where we are all to shepherd one another as we embrace the call of God to build up the body of Christ until we come to maturity to shepherd the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. This is our life. This is our calling. And it is the greatest calling on the planet. It is a calling for every one of us who name the name of Christ to shepherd the flock of God that Jesus bought with His blood. May He help us. May He help us against great attacks to be faithful to that calling. Let's pause for prayer. Father, there are some among us very likely who are not among Your flock. The wounds of Jesus do not plead in their behalf as pertains to their daily living. That's not what marks their soul. I pray, Father, for anyone that is separated from Christ today, that according to Your will, You would draw that soul to the great Shepherd in whose presence the soul will never hunger or thirst again. I pray that You would help them to see Jesus as the Lamb of God, crucified to bear the wrath of God, risen in conquest over death and Satan. For those of us who have been born again and know Jesus as our Savior, Father, we pause to give You thanks that we have a good shepherd. For the shepherds of this church, again, pertaining to every one of us on some level, as we seek to influence others for Christ, I pray, Father, that our devotion would be to this great cause. But Lord, we fail. Yet thank You that Jesus never does. Thank You that our souls have found their shepherd, their healer. And I pray that You would continue to restore and deepen and build and aid us in the faith. And that we would take on this challenge to be shepherds one of another as we nurture spiritual growth to the glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.